Well, as you take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5, we'll be reading the first 13 verses today. Thank you very much, Drew, because I forgot again this week. Any kids don't have kid notes would like kid notes. All right, so all the kids got them. So any adults want kid notes that don't have kid notes. There are some in the back. Go give them some kid notes, Drew. We have to make sure all the kids get theirs first, and then we can give them out to the adults. So a set of special notes. There's some in the back on the left there, Drew. Yeah. It's kind of divided, designed to keep our kids a little bit of stuff for them to work on during our serving today. We've uh, been preaching for quite a, some time now through the first uh, first John uh, with a set of words called upwards. Today's word is faith. It's interesting. Last week we talked about living fearless and how fear and faith are kind of mortal enemies of each other, and how fear is attacking our faith. And so today we're going to look at faith and what faith is. Um, and so we'll read the scriptures in First John chapter, starting with verse uh, chapter five, verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. This is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, and the one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The things I have written, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. As I said, today we're going to be looking at faith and trying to kind of just condense down what it is we mean by faith, what biblical faith is in particular. But before I go on, and so I want to start off, you know, this was kind of our first thought, what, is, what the Christian faith is in. For those of you carrying the kid notes, there you go, you see the kid note there. Faith is believing in things you can't see. Actually, in Hebrews it says that's what faith is, the assurance of things unseen. But before we go on to talk about what the Christian faith is in, what, what John's talking about here, we probably need to have a, a, just a quick conversation about what we mean when we say the word faith itself. Our faith is, is very pointed and it centers on one thing, and that's who Jesus is. But what do we mean when we say faith? We use this word in our society, uh, same word, but with two kind of what I consider very different kind of meanings, different ideas behind it. Imagine this, if I was to ask you, what is your faith? How would you respond? What is your faith? Would you say, well, I'm a Christian? 
I'm of the, you know, Judeo, Judeo-Christian kind of line of things. I'm a Protestant. Um, how would you define when that answer of what is your faith? The British Dictionary, I think, does a particularly good job in pointing out what I'm trying to say here. They have two definitions for the word faith. One, a strong, unshakable belief in something, especially without proof or evidence. The uh, second definition is a specific system of religious beliefs. And so that's my question. When you say faith, do you mean a system of morality or religion? I'm a Christian. I'm a Jew. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Protestant. I'm a Catholic. Are you talking about a particular system of religion when you say this is my faith? And can it, because that can mean any system, whether it's a Christian or other type of religious system out there, or do you mean a deeply held belief? When you answer that question, here's what I believe in my core being about certain things, or I'm a follower of a religious system when you describe your faith. Because those are two very, very different things. We can put our faith in a system of doing all the right things and being at all the right places and and looking all the same things, you know. And we can even build our own Christian systems, right? Be at church, read your Bible, pray three or four times a week, you know, give an offering, do all the right things. And we're putting all our faith on the system and not the core values of the faith, what it, what we really hold in our heart. And it's those deeply held convictions of our heart that I want to talk about today. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, Now faith is assurance things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, by, for by it men of old gained approval. Their approval was not because they were good Jews, because that's who it's talking about in Hebrews, these, these Jewish people, these people Called out by God, you know, Abraham and Isaac and David and, and all the great heroes of, of the uh, 11th chapter of Hebrews, uh, Noah and, and so forth. It, they weren't no, uh, recognized because they were the best keepers of their religious practice because they had deep heartfelt belief in what God was and who God was and what he said to do. And so that's what we mean by faith. We want to look at these deeply held beliefs and not just promote some kind of system. So what is the Christian faith or what the Christian faith is in? Kind of going back up if you're keeping your notes to that question. The Christian faith has a very particular belief in Jesus Christ. It really centers on Jesus. It's very pointed about who Jesus is. And there's two elements to what we, what John's pointing out here. First, it says in verse one, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And so one of the particulars we believe is that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is a a word talking about God's anointed one, a, a promised one. In the Hebrew, the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall of man, when God is talking to Adam and Eve and, and, and Satan and kind of pronouncing the, the results, the curse, as we would call it, what goes wrong because of the fall, he says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise him on the hill and he will crush your head. It's a promise made to Satan about one born of woman, 
a human, to come sometime in the future that's going to defeat Satan. It's the very first gospel message early on there. We call it the Proto-Evangelium in theological terms, meaning the first gospel. And it's a promise to Satan about a Messiah, a promised one, an anointed one, one who is special and set apart by God to defeat the works of Satan. Throughout the Old Testament, that promise is reiterated over and over and over and over. That there's one to come, one to come, a Messiah, a Savior is coming. Someone who's going to fix the mess Satan has made and the sin is and the destruction that it's called. If you were to go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem today, you would still find Jewish people there praying on their knees, banging their head against the wall, praying for the Messiah to come. And our belief as Christians is that Jesus is that Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one promised to come and set right what Satan messed up in the Garden of Eden. He is the one, uh, he is the line of David. He is the, uh, from the line of David to sit on David's throne. He is the promised one and we believe that. That's what our friend Stuart Weinish works in the Jewish communities to believe, to help the Jewish people see Jesus is our Messiah. But we go further than that, and John points that out. And we go further to say, not only do we believe he is the Christ, but he goes, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so likewise, we go further than just saying he is the Messiah, but we say Jesus is divine. Jesus is is God. Christians believe Jesus is God. We had a interesting time Wednesday night. We I was doing the the class with the little children on our Wednesday night uh uh children's night and we were talking about what it means to love God. The verse we just read where it says the love of God is to obey his commands. And I asked him, I said, has there ever been anyone who loved God perfectly? Meaning that, that he obeyed everything God said. And, and some kind of God knew who it was and said, oh yeah, Jesus did that. Jesus loved God perfectly. Then one of our little kids said, yeah, but Jesus is God. Right. But he still loved God perfectly. They get it that Jesus is God, that he is divine. This is the most pointed particular belief of Christianity. This is the heart of the Advent season, which Walmart is already preparing for Christmas. That Jesus is God incarnate. God come down in human flesh. This is the core belief of Christianity. Jesus is the divine Messiah. Everything else we do, everything else we believe circles around that. What Jesus did on the cross doesn't matter if he's not the Messiah. Lots of people died on the cross, but because he was the perfect Lamb of God, God in flesh, what he did on the cross matters. What he teaches wouldn't matter except for he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. And so what he teaches matters to us. What he tells us to do matters to us. The life he lived matters to us, not because of any other reason than that Jesus is the divine Christ. It's that base idea that makes everything else work. And that's what we must believe. It is the essence of what we believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God.
That is the basis of what we believe in. But what our faith is really about. In verse five, it says, verse four, it says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith in this life is really about overcoming. Overcoming this world, the world in which we live in. See, the world, because of what happened there in the Garden of Eden, the fall, this world is broken. It's messed up. There's tragedy and pain and suffering. It is far less than the paradise God created for us and wanted us to be in. It is not the plan that God had for us originally. It is a broken, fallen world. And our faith is not about making it good in this world. Our faith is about overcoming this world, about getting out of this place into the kind of place God intended us to live in. Paradise in his presence. And that's what our faith is really based on. But much, And so I, I give you this axiom that's not really popular in today's preaching, or I don't hear it a lot at least, is that the Christian has much less comfort in this world than in the world to come. But we, much of preaching, biblical preaching, is about making it all about this world. We have become so blessed focused that we don't realize that that's not what our faith is all about. That, that in many cases, how blessed you are has become the litmus test of how much faith you have. The more faith you have, the more blessings you will receive. And I can tell you how much faith you have because of how many blessings you got. This has become the litmus test for much of Christianity. And it's become the preaching line that God died so you can have everything be okay in this life. Kids, I want you to know something. Very honestly, Christians can have real struggles in this life. Bad things can happen to Christians. Bad things often happen to Christians. Bad things will happen to Christians. You need to know that just if you become a Christian, everything's not going to be okay. Because the Lord says the Satan is the ruler of this world. He has dominion over this place. And we don't belong to this world. We belong somewhere else. Speaking of blessings, though, the problem with blessings is there the definition of blessings are so, well, relative. Who decides what a blessing is and what a blessing isn't? Usually me, right? If I like it, it's a blessing. If I don't like it, well, it's not a blessing. You know, God's mad at me now. It's interesting that we don't sign up to to be like Paul. Paul, when he was writing to the Philippians, said, It has been graced to me. I have been blessed not only to believe, but to suffer for Christ's sake. How many want to sign up for a double dose of the Pauline blessing today? Or, or, Or when it talks about Jesus, said, For the glory set before him... Humbled himself and endured the cross. For the blessing of God set before him, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Are we signing up for that blessing today? Or Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith, the big hitters in God's faith, 
all these Noah and Abraham and Moses and Sarah and Gideon and Caleb and, and Joshua and on and on and on the list goes. Here's what it says about them. All these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Where was their focus? It was overcoming this world into the life that is to come. And so they didn't even get it in this world. Later on in chapter in verse 35 of Hebrews 11, it says this and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrections and others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also in chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, ill treated men of whom the world was not worthy. And all wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, all these suffering people, all these not blessed people, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. Our faith is not about this world. It's not about having it all work out right in this world. Our faith is heavenly focused. It's a particular focus to our faith. We have a very particular faith in who Jesus is and what happened because of who he is and what that faith gets us. Heaven, not heaven on earth. Because we don't belong to this. And speaking of blessings... I'm humbled by my mentors, one of my mentors axiom. It's called the Murphy axiom number one. At least that's what I call it. He starts off every day saying this to himself. I deserve to go to hell. Anything less than that's a pretty good day. We've been blessed by God. We don't receive the due penalty for our sins. We get the assurance of eternal life in God's presence. What more do we want? I deserve to go to hell, but because of who Jesus is, because of him being the divine Messiah, because of what he did for me on the cross, I have the assurance of eternal life and overcoming this broken world to live in a perfect one that is yet to come. That's pretty good blessing. So that's what we believe. One quick reminder to our kids notes is that faith in Jesus overcomes our struggles. That's what our faith is all about. That when we have Jesus, no matter what that struggle is we face in this world, that's our chance to overcome it. It is the face of those adversities that we face, those those moments of trial, those moments of tribulation, and those moments when everything doesn't go our way. It's those adversities of our faith that strengthen and test our faith. James got that in chapter 1, verse 2 and 4. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let the endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
And so the very things that Satan would use to derail you and cause your faith to weaken, God says, this is the testing of your faith. And it will grow you to endurance till the day God takes you home and you overcome as a victor. So we need to take a look at a particular passage of scripture here. The passage goes on to talk about what our faith is founded on. We have a particular faith in Jesus, what he is, who he is, the divine Messiah. We have a particular focus to our faith that is heaven outside this world. And we have a very particular source for our faith. This passage of scripture, this middle section, the water and the blood and, and, and the testimonies and the three testify is probably one of the most difficult or is one of the most difficult scriptures to understand what the author was intending. Scholars debate it and have all kind of different ideas. Most scholars, uh, see that the water reference is a, is a reference to Jesus' baptism, the blood being, uh, a reference to his death on the cross, but there's others who think it's all a reference to his death on the cross. Some say the water is a sign of his actual human birth. Uh, and so there's all kind of different ideas out there. I kind of ascribe to the majority of scholars because they're smarter than I am. And look at these three witnesses as uh, witnesses to what our foundation of our belief. And so I'm trying to explain that a little bit. So what is our faith founded on? First, it's the witness of the water that John's talking about here. Talking about Jesus' baptism. That at the moment Jesus baptized, he identified himself with us. Now, it's particularly important to realize that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. One of the, the key uh, um, prophecies to recognize the Messiah was this forerunner who would go before him and make way the, uh, make prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord. And this is John the Baptist. And all four of the Gospels rep, uh, mention the role of John the Baptist in the coming of Jesus. And so we have the Old Testament fulfillment of this preparer for the Messiah, baptizing the Messiah, who by that act begins his earthly ministry and everything that follows in the three years of his earthly ministry. And so I think the witness of the water is pointing to Jesus beginning his ministry here on earth and all that follows. All the miracles, all the uh, teaching he does. That it's a reference to his ministry that started with his baptism by John. And then would end with the second witness. The witness of the blood. And so that is Jesus' death and passion. That Passion Week, all that happens as Jesus is betrayed and, and, and his friends abandon him and he goes to trial and he stands innocent before Pilate and he's beaten and he's mocked, fulfilling many more of the Old Testament scriptures and finally dying on a cross, uh, uh, giving us God's righteousness as he takes his sin on the world. And so it's a reference to the beginning of Jesus's ministry the life of that ministry, and then the end of that ministry, how that happens. The third witness is the witness of the Spirit. That part within us, that internal conviction that you sense, but you can't make sense of. That thing that inside of you tells you this Jesus thing is real. That he is God, that he is the Messiah, that that although you can't wrap your brain around how all of it happens and how he can be the second person of the Trinity and how he can be fully divine and fully human and how all those things fit together, you can't get your head around, but but you're convinced somewhere inside of you that that's right. 
That's the conviction of the Spirit. That's the witness of the Spirit within you. Paul describes that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech and wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now we receive, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not with words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. Because he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That when we hear the word, when we hear the word preached, when we read the word, when we think about who God is, that, that there's things that the Spirit must convince us of with himself. And it won't make sense in human terms. We can't make sense out of it, of God with everything we think. We'll never completely understand God. To, to do that would require for us to be God. And so we must always accept that God's bigger, smarter, more than we can ever grasp. And that we need the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit to come and help us discern and appraise things spiritually and not by our natural way of thinking. And so I think these are the three witnesses that are the foundation of our faith. The, the scriptures, what the scriptures teach us about Jesus and what he did and the evidences of his Messiahship. What it tells us about what he did on the cross for us. And our faith is in that act because he was the divine Messiah convinced to us by the work of the Spirit in our lives. But there's a fourth witness that, that I think is referenced here at least somewhat. And that's the witness of God. Now, it's true that God was a witness at all three of these events. At Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, as soon as Jesus was baptized, it said, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. Suddenly the heavens were open, and we saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, resting on him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved, and who I am well pleased. And so God himself was there at the baptism, recognizing that Jesus was the Son. At the crucifixion, you remember God's presence wasn't quite so, so proud. For the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. And at that moment when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earthquake, the rocks were split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. When the centurion and those guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified. Why? Because they saw God was upset. They saw that God was there that day and his son, was he was brokenhearted and they testified truly this was the son of God. And so God showed his presence at the crucifixion too. The Spirit is nothing more than God's presence in our lives, himself talking to us and convincing us the truth of our faith. But there's a great witness that I want to mention. 
that sets Jesus apart from all others. The resurrection. That after Jesus had fulfilled his earthly ministry that started with his baptism, ended with his crucifixion, and the work of the Spirit sent out to start the church afterwards, at the moment of his resurrection, God showed his approval of his son. The great witness of God is that Jesus is alive today. We have the only faith that serves a risen Lord. It is God's great witness. And if we deny the resurrection, if we deny the witness of the resurrection, we have called God a liar. That's where John started off his letter in 1 John 1. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John starts the letter off saying, I have seen the risen Savior. I've talked with the risen Savior. I've touched the risen Savior. It makes all the difference. And here's what we want you to know. We want you to know that the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and manifested to us. We have seen and heard. We proclaim it to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And he says in this scripture, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. This is our faith, particular in who Jesus is, the divine Messiah, focused on overcoming this world and living the eternal life with Jesus, based on the testimony of Scripture, the work of the Spirit, and what Jesus did in His life. And we proclaim it to the world because we want them, too, to have the eternal life found in Jesus. I don't want you to be Baptist or Christian even particularly, Protestant or any other system you can find. I want you to have faith in Jesus, the Messiah, overcomer of this world, provider of eternal life, and follow him all your days with all your heart. And so my final question is, whoops, quickly for our kid note, faith in Jesus We have faith in Jesus because the Bible, God told us about him in the Bible. And so my final question, what is your faith? Is it in a system or is it a deep held belief in Jesus? Systems will fail. Every system will fail. Jesus will not. And if you're not sure the answer to that question, please, let's have more of a conversation together.